morning. It's a chilly morning. I feel actually underdressed up here. I'm cold. Um, it's good to be with you, Rocky. It's great to worship God together as the body of Christ and study his word and sing. And man, choir, that last song, that was epic. So thank you so much. That was one of the most beautiful things I've heard all week. And um, I'm excited with you guys as we continue on our journey through um, Hebrews 11 to learn more about what it means to live as the Christian by faith. And as I was kind of studying last week and just preparing for this sermon and um, reading through Hebrews 11, I was, I was reminded that, that Hebrews 11 spans across a long time, actually several thousand years. And many of the people highlighted in chapter 11 of Hebrews are radically different from each other. They're different. They were separated both geographically and culturally. And in our minds, and especially when you think about like children's Bibles and stuff, it's easy just to kind of group everybody from the Bible together, as if they all just lived at the same time, kind of in the same neighborhood. But what we see in Hebrews 11 is that these people were diverse. They were diverse. Um, There's Abel. We talked about Abel, right? He was a shepherd. You look a little bit further, you read about Abraham, who was a former pagan, Chaldean, nomad chief. You keep reading, and you, you read about Rahab. She was like an urban Canaanite um, prostitute. These are, these are different people. They're not cookie-cutter lookalikes. They're different. And yet, as we read through the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, we see that despite their differences, despite their differences, all these people had something in common. They're all united by something great. And this wasn't their ethnicity. It wasn't their vocation. It wasn't where they lived. It was faith. The common denominator, denominator between all these people was their faith. And it was a common faith. It was a God-dependent, eternity-focused faith. And so Hebrews 11, this does not trace one specific type of people, one specific type of family, but it traces a very specific type of faith that unifies and unites radically different kinds of people. So just look around you for a minute. Make eye contact with somebody you don't yet know. I know it's awkward. What do you guys all have in common? The world would distinguish and divide us and arrange us based on external things like our ethnicity, where we were born, our vocation, how much money we make, what kind of political slogans we fly, all these things. And yet the truth is, this is not how God sees us. This is not how God looks at people. The family of, the family tree that matters to God is one of faith. And I think that's super important. So this morning, following the previous examples that we've been given by mystery man of Abel and Enoch, we're going to consider the faith of another man named Noah. But really, and the point here I want to make is that if we're Christians, if we're true followers of Jesus, then the faith of these, of these early heroes, like like Enoch, like Abel, and like Noah now, this, this faith is our faith as well. It's the same faith as you and I. By this common faith, though we're superficially different on the outside, we are true family. That's good news. So for the rest of the sermon, I want us to consider three principles of faith that we see lived out in the life of Noah. But before we jump in, who was Noah? Who was this guy? Unlike last week's hero of faith, Enoch, who, to be honest, I, I knew very little about before last week. We know a lot more about Noah, right? 
He's one of the most famous characters of the Bible, and he's all over the scriptures. He's in four chapters alone in Genesis, and then throughout the rest of the Bible into the New Testament, there are many references made to Noah in the account of the global flood. So Noah is a more common figure from scripture. We know a lot about him. According to Genesis 5, Noah, he was born, born as the 10th generation from Adam. So not too far along from Enoch, the 10th generation from Adam. By this time, we learn when we read in Genesis 6 that the world had become wicked, right? The, 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 the sin of Adam had spread like poison and had affected all of humanity. And yet, while the majority of Adam and Eve's children and grandchildren, they chose to go their own way and reject God, there was a remnant. There was a line. Descendants from Seth, right? Those people who called on the name of the Lord, it says. And we find, and we read that Noah, he was, he was from this, this line of Seth. And these people, they would have acknowledged before God that they were sinners. They would have come to God with sacrifices, probably modeled not too, are very similar after the pattern of, of Abel. They would have recognized that they needed a Savior. They would have been trusting in God's promise, which had been passed down to them about the deliverer that he was going to send. And so Noah, he was a product of this heritage of faith. And last week, Pastor Troy, he talked about Enoch. Well, Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather, actually. So there's Enoch, and then you get to Noah a couple generations later. That was his great-grandfather. And I see a clear connection. And when you read through those early chapters of Genesis, you see a clear connection between Enoch, a man who walked with God, and Noah. And I don't have this in your, in your, um, in your, in your guide there. But look at the, the resemblance between their descriptions. If you go back to Genesis, we're going to be, we're going to be turning, by the way, back and forth. You can flip back real quick to Genesis like 6. We're going to be in that chapter a lot. If you flip back there, you see that Noah in Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9, this is how he's described. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. You get that? He walked faithfully with God, as did Enoch. And that walking with God, although we see that throughout the scriptures, that phrase is very unique. You only find it a couple places. One of them is Enoch, and another is Noah. So I see an interesting connection there, a connection between the faith of Noah and his great-grandpa. And I actually had the privilege of, well, knowing two great-grandpas, but um, one, one in particular was Wade Snyder. Um, and this man was a, he was a true follower of Jesus. He loved the Lord, and he modeled that to his family and his life. And I remember I, was, I had the privilege of being there for his 102nd birthday, a century and two years. And I remember looking around at this huge group of family who came up for this reunion and to celebrate his his birthday, and I, I was just amazed. I was like, all these people came from this one man. It was amazing. But the point is, his, his faith was modeled to his family, and that's something that's made a big impact on my life. It's something that stuck with me. And so on a side note, this is just, this is just as an aside, how, how will your faith fu- impact future generations? This is something to consider. This is something to consider. Think about how God has positioned you guys, and specifically the, the patriarchs, the matriarchs of Rocky. How has God positioned you to model to future generations what it looks like to walk with God in faith? 
if you think about it, every stage of life, like, like every stage of life, the retirement years, they can be invested or wasted. So don't waste them. Maybe you don't have the energy that you once had, but you have time, you have resources, you have wisdom, you have stories to pass on. So take every effort to invest. Maybe your faith one day is going to rub off on a future great-grandchild because as Enoch walked with God, so did Noah. So that's just an aside, but this is the man that we're going to consider with the sermon this morning, Noah. This is who the mystery man, the writer of Hebrews, he wants us to think about. There's something from his life that's worth learning from. So we have one verse here, verse 7, and from this verse, I see three principles of faith for us to learn from Noah's life. So first of all, the first principle I see is that Noah's faith, our biblical faith, it relies on the Word of God. Biblical faith always relies on the Word of God. Hebrews eleven seven reads, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So like the last two heroes of faith we considered, Noah's tribute kicks, it gets kicked off with these two words, by faith. But I have a question. What was this faith? What is biblical faith hinged on? What serves as the basis or the starting point for faith? In our text, it was the word of God. It was a clear revelation, a message from God. Mystery man, he refers to this message, this word from God, as God's warning concerning events as yet unseen. And when we go back to the Genesis account, I hope you're, I hope you're there, we read that it's actually a lot more than that, right? Mystery man kind of gives us the short version of it. So let's look back and read from Genesis 6, verses 13 through 16. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. With the earth. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Wow. So this, is, this isn't just like a small warning. This is actually a lengthy message to Noah which includes instructions, right? God, in this, this warning, this message, this word of God, he included the reason for his righteous judgment. He explained to Noah that it was humanity's wickedness. And he offered Noah and his family a solution, right? This ark of salvation, a seaworthy vessel with blueprints, instructions on how to create it. This was going to be Noah and his family's avenue of escape. But God gave Noah instructions, he gave Noah a clear word. And it was this instruction, this instruction that served as the basis for Noah's response of faith. It was the starting point for this opportunity of faith. And this faith was, this, this, this was going to stretch Noah's faith, but this was the starting point. And why is this, so why, maybe this is like, maybe you're like, duh, but why is this important? Why is this important that biblical faith relies on the word of God? We might know this. Why is this important? Because this attribute of biblical faith distinguishes and separates it from the faith of the world. It's totally unique from faith as viewed by the world. 
If you were to walk around this afternoon, after you've had lunch, you head out to the Destin Commons, if you were to go around interviewing people, asking them, what is faith? What does faith mean to you? You'd get a lot of different answers, right? And they would range from, well, faith is it's following your heart. Faith is it's, it's a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. It's like our spiritual compass. Well, faith is just a gut intuition. In just the right time, the right place, we just know what to do. It just comes from our gut. Or on the other side of the spectrum, you might get answers like, well, faith, it's a plunge into the unknown. It's, it's irrational hope. Or faith is just the last resort, abandonment from, from reason, right? It's the last resort. It's what we do when there's nowhere else to turn. We, we have faith. Or you might get a response like, faith is it's intellectual suicide. So you have all these answers. This is what the world has to say about faith. But do you see how these definitions, they differ? They differ from biblical faith? Worldly faith, worldly faith is untethered to God's word. People will say all the time, you just got to have faith. But in what? What's the source? What's the substance? What's the basis for that faith? It's subjective. So no, biblical faith, as we see in the life of Noah, biblical faith, it relies on a clear instruction from God. Every time, people don't muster up faith from nowhere. And as we read in Romans 10, 17, where does faith come from? It, Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, or the word of God. So as in the account of Noah, what we see consistently throughout the Bible is that God doesn't leave his people in the dark. He doesn't do that. He always leaves people with a word, a message, a clear promise about himself, a truth about what he's going to do. That's part of his character. Recall the opening words of this book we're studying, the book of Hebrews, right? What, is, what does mystery man say? How does he start it off? He says, long ago, in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So God speaks, and when God speaks, God, when he makes himself known by his word, like Noah, each of us, we find ourselves at a crossroads. We can either take God's word, as he says it, and run with it, believe, that's faith, or on the, or on the other side, we can, we can reject it. We can choose to disbelieve. One way, it leads to life, and the other, to death. But there's a reason why most, many people don't choose the road of faith, right? That path. The narrow road, as, as Jesus described it. People of faith have always been a remnant for a reason. Why? Because the Word of God, it regularly challenges human convention, human logic, human reasoning. To be honest, sometimes the Word of God, it, it's just, it sounds crazy. That's okay to say. Sometimes the Word of God is crazy. It's crazy. Think about it. Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go to the mountain I will show you, and there sacrifice him as a burnt offering for me. Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the Red Sea and divide it. <laughs> Joshua, march your army around the city of Jericho for six days. And then on the seventh, march seven times around and blow the trumpet and the walls are going to fall flat. Mary, although, although you're a virgin, you've been with no man. You are going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to give birth to Jesus. He's the Son of the Most High. 
You see that? The word of God, it's always clear, but it often defies our expectations. <laughs> and according to our text here, God's message to Noah, it was about events yet unseen. That's what it says here in our verse. Events yet unseen. In other words, this was something totally unrelatable to Noah. It was something that he had never experienced. It was something that he could not even anticipate. This was beyond his understanding. God's warning of this global flood, of bringing floodwaters and judgment, it was unlike anything Noah had ever experienced. And up to this point, we don't even know. We, I mean, it's all speculation. It's all speculation. A lot like last week when we were talking about Enoch. What, what was it like in these first generations? It's a lot of so there's a lot of question marks. We don't know if, if Noah had ever been to like a large body of water. We don't know where he was located. We don't know if shipbuilding was even a common practice among his generation yet. And so this was a crazy command of God. This, this mission of constructing uh, this wooden vessel on a scale this big, it was unlike the world, like unlike anything the world had ever seen. And so that's the point. The ark would have been something along the lines of like one and a half football fields long, about 80 feet wide, about 50 feet tall. It's comparable to modern day cargo ships. So the scale, the dimension, this was a crazy command from God. But what about us? Does God continue to speak to us today? Absolutely, right? And he's given us his word. He speaks to us through the Bible. This book, right, God's word, it serves as the bedrock and the foundation for our faith today, just like Noah. And so when God speaks, we too find ourselves at a cross, crossroads. Um, for the Christian, it isn't on a whim or an instinct, but on the clear, objective truths and commands we find in this book that we move forward in faith every day. Even when it defies convention, guys. Because of what God's word says, we do crazy things. We deny ourselves of worldly recognition, of rights, of comforts, of safety, and we take up our crosses and we follow Jesus. Because of what God's word says, instead of wasting our time, wasting our lives worrying about what we're going to eat, what we're going to dress, we trust our lives to our creator who promises to provide for us. <laughs> Instead of trying to just work our fingers to the bone to accumulate more wealth, bigger checking accounts, so we can buy better houses, faster cars, whatever, we store our treasures in heaven where moth and, and rust isn't going to get to it. Because of God's word, some of us give the best years of our lives, the best years of our lives, and we, we leave it all behind and we serve God overseas. Um, Leading people of faith. <laughs> and um, also, <laughs> sorry, because of God's word. Um, we, we, we plug our ears to the, to the lies of our culture and tell us that we insist are to, to insist and, and lie to us that, man, we deserve to just kind of spend the last stretch of our life coasting, you know, 25 or 30 years uh, 
just doing nothing watching TV or in retirement. Because of God's word, we plug our ears to that. We say, no, we keep, we keep serving the church with our lives, with our gifts, with our, our time. So, <clears throat> so the point is we do all this because of God's word. And <laughs> it sounds crazy to me. It sounds countercultural, doesn't it? I, I hope it does to you. And, and it should. It should, guys, because, because like Noah, um, it's crazy, but we can stand firm in our convictions. Um, and, you know, it's crazy, but— Oh, man. Sorry, guys. It's crazy, but like Noah, we can stand firm in our convictions, our hope, even when we're called to do hard things, impossible things, because what we believe, it's anchored. Like we said, it's not like worldly faith that's just untethered to God's word, but this is actually anchored to truth. And so, biblical faith, my, my point in all this is that biblical faith is not blind faith. It's not blind faith, but it's actually, it's beholding the, the word of God, however crazy, however radical, however <laughs> conventional, however human-defined, and it's saying, yes, God, I, I believe. So, so Noah's faith, it was founded on this. It was founded on the clear word of God. Um, and that's really important. That's, that's, this, is, this is Christian 101. Our faith is founded on God's word, and he calls us to do crazy things, but we can live by conviction and hope because it's something sure. Um, you know, the second principle I see here in this verse, this is one little short verse, and it, I, was just, I was struggled with this because there's so much in Noah's story, and I was tempted just to kind of go back and, and dwell in the Old Testament, but I'm trying to stay close with what our verse says here. The second principle I, of faith I see in Noah's life here is that it leads to action. Biblical faith always leads to action. Um, Hebrews 11:7. this is like the second part of the sentence here. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So we're focusing on the second half of the sentence, right? What Noah did. Biblical faith is founded on God's word. And it's not stagnant. It doesn't stay there. It takes action. It moves. Here we see that Noah's faith, it actually moves him. It compelled him to do that which was commanded of him by God. And that was no small feat. We just talked about the ark, right? This was a life-altering, massive undertaking. And it would take Noah decades and decades and decades of his life to finish. It was going to affect his family. Um, When we look back in Genesis to God's initial instructions, and we read some of those, I actually wanted to include others. There was a bunch of other instructions all about what kind of animals to bring on board, what kind of food to bring on board, etc. But after all those instructions— about the dimensions and what kind of wood to use, how to seal the ark with pitch, how the decks were to be arranged, and, and so forth. After all this, in, in um, let's see, Genesis 6.22, this is what we read. It's ten words. Ten words. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And I find it really incredible because the very next verse after that, it picks up with God commanding Noah to enter the ark. This is seven days before he sends the floodwaters. So this one sentence we have, ten words, this encompasses this, this massive period of Noah's life from beginning to end of the construction of the ark. This is all we have. It's one sentence. It's one sentence. 
Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And depending on how you calculate, there's different ways of kind of calculating the time. Well, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? When you look at his life, um, uh, or his age when the floodwaters came, and you, and you go back and you, you do some calculations, it was anywhere between like 50 to 75 years. And so a lot of things could have been said about this time. But this is what the inspired biblical author, he wanted us to remember. This is what he left behind for us. What? That Noah's faith moved him to action. It moved him to action. This was obedient and enduring faith. He did it. He did all that God commanded him. Um, this week, along with actually some of you guys, I got to help the Brewers family pack up. They, they left Friday, and um, they had a whole lot of stuff in their house to pack up, so um, I had the privilege of helping with that a little bit. Um, but before we got started, Jared, he actually took us over in his, in his front yard, and pulled this big tarp, and underneath this tarp was this beautiful boat. Beautiful boat. I don't know if you guys, some of you guys have seen this. He's been working on this for a long time. It's a wooden boat. He built it by his own hand, 20 foot long, and it was just, I was, I was shocked. It was so cool, and like, we spent a lot of time just talking about it. He was, he was all into it, you know, and, um, and then we started packing and got really sweaty, but he built this boat by hand, and it was amazing, and he was saying that professionals, for, for a boat like this, like for the very best professionals, it takes at least 500 hours. And for him, it had taken a lot more. Um, he would just do it in his free time. But it was an impressive boat, a wooden boat. He built it by hand. And as I was sitting there just kind of staring at this, and I was thinking about, man, the sermon and Noah and the ark, I just couldn't help but imagine on how much of a greater scale the undertaking of the construction of the ark was. It's incredible. And... That led to me kind of on another train of thought, which is that, you know, as uh, some of you guys know, my family, we actually had the, the opportunity to build a boat too, <laughs> to help build a boat anyway, and it was a wooden boat. And this boat, she was 60, 60 feet long, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a catamaran built after the pattern and the style of the, the old um, Polynesian deep-sea double canoes. It was a beautiful boat, and this was back in Indonesia, and we actually planned to sail this boat from over there all the way back here to Florida before I started college. And um, it, it was crazy. It was a crazy undertaking. But this boat was very traditionally built. We used um, manpower and simple tools. Every, every plank was actually connected by wooden dowels, like a puzzle. There's a certain kind of bark that was put in between them. Um, the beams that connected the two holes, because it was like a catamaran, they were actually lashed together with rope. It was very traditional, but it was um, incredible how just simple building techniques um, and manpower, how much could be accomplished. Um, I'm kind of off on a, on a tangent, but the point is from sunup till sundown, we worked on this boat, and it was a lot of work. It was a serious undertaking. And um, while we were doing that, in this little, this little coastal town of Nabire, as we were constructing this boat, pretty soon word got out about this crazy American family who was like building this boat to sail back to America, and everybody in the city knew about us, and my brothers can tell you, every day we'd be down there working on the beach, and people just stop by on their little motorcycles just to kind of check us out and see a few words, and then they drive on. But pretty soon, the whole city knew what we were doing, and a lot of people thought we were crazy. <laughs> I know some of you guys thought we were crazy, too. But uh, people thought we were crazy, and on a, on a like, far, far greater scale— can you imagine what Noah went through? What people thought about Noah building this ark? Can you imagine? Imagine children growing up 
from the time they're small children to the time they're old in age. Growing up, seeing this massive skeleton of the ship taking form. The ribs going in. The decking starting to be put on. Can you imagine that? What they would have thought of, how, what, what they would have asked their parents? I imagine that the ark, in its own right, became some kind of, almost like a small tourist attraction. I imagine that. And as people came to see and, and give their opinions on this thing, the ark, it would have served as a beacon, as a beacon for Noah's message. And his message, it was a warning to those around him to repent, to turn back to God from their wickedness before it's too late. Um, Pastor Troy, he put it, kind of this image in my head that I, I honestly can't get out now, of like Noah, like up there, like hanging onto the scaffolding of the ark with like a mallet in one hand and just like preaching to the people. Now, I don't know if that's like romanticizing the story a bit, but regardless, we actually do know from Second Peter um, chapter 2, verse 5, that Noah was a herald or a preacher of righteousness. So I think there's definitely an element of truth to that. Noah, he was a preacher of righteousness. Surely he was preaching out against the sinful acts around him and urging people, urging people to repent, to turn back to the truth. And I have no doubt, I have no doubt that Noah was mocked and ridiculed for his faith, his enduring obedience to God. Just imagine the accusations made against him by his, his neighbors and even extended family who didn't believe what they thought of him year after year with no sign, no sign, little promise of God's word and sight. This was years of endurance. And this was a costly undertaking. I don't think, I don't even know. I think Noah must have been a wealthy man because the resources it would have taken to accomplish this would have been great. The money that went into funding and I imagine even probably hiring workers to construct this thing would have been great. The strain on Noah's wife and kids would have been great. There must have been moments, because Noah was human, there must have been moments where he just gave in to frustration and anger and doubt. But he endured. So, friends, there's a great lesson and a principle of faith to be learned from all this. We can talk about things all day, but what are we actively doing? If the revelation of God's word that we have right in front of us in our own language, if this revelation, it doesn't compel us to act, what does that say about our faith? James, you know, the brother of Jesus, he has a lot to say about this, right? And he, he challenged his own congregation with the same question. And you guys know this verse. We, we, this is regularly talked about. James 2, um, verses 14 through 17. This is what James asks. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's James' verdict. So, bottom line, friends, if our faith, if it doesn't have a pulse, you check it, no pulse, if there's no movement, it's dead. It's dead faith. Noah's faith, it drove him to action. Action which was not only obedient, but enduring. Year after year after year. And to move forward in faith, it's not easy. It's not easy. 
But when we're mocked, because you will be, when you're mocked, you're ridiculed, you're falsely accused, it's okay. <laughs> That's the point. It's okay. Um, if you remember, uh, I, I find this kind of amusing, but some, some, probably many, they challenged Paul's um, mental state, right? His, his mental health. Paul, why are you risking your life for the gospel? Why are you doing all these crazy things? Why do you care so much about the Gentiles? Why, Paul? And his, his kind of response in 2 Corinthians 5.13, it's something along the lines of, hey, if we're out of our minds, it's for God. <laughs> so to the watching world, we might look foolish, but that's okay. People are going to cock their heads at us and kind of look at us funny. That's to be expected if we are truly living lives that act on faith. So biblical faith is founded on God's word. It's founded on God's word. It leads to action. And now a third principle of faith we see in Noah's life is that it justifies. Biblical faith justifies. So now we're under the second, our second sentence here. It's just a short little verse. Hebrews eleven seven. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, on the heels of that second principle of faith that we just talked about, that faith always leads to action. On the heels of that, it might be kind of tempting just to think, well, you know, Noah's obedience, that was the basis for God saving him. Noah was a good man. He was described as a preacher of righteousness. Noah was good, and so, so God saved him and his family. In our text here, the, that, um, that by this, that, that kicks it off, by this, maybe that's somehow referring to Noah's obedience. You know, that, that might be our, kind of our default thinking, but that would be a tragic misreading of Hebrews 11.7 and, frankly, the, the rest of the Bible. Because here we understand that, no, Noah was saved and he was called righteous, not on the basis of his, his good works or even his, his obedience, but on the basis of his faith. And there's a danger, especially in the church, a danger of viewing the Bible, viewing especially the characters of the Bible through kind of this lens of moralism. And you get this a lot in children's books. And this is something that we we try really hard to do, not at the heights. We try to not preach some kind of gospel or message of moralism, which goes like this, because you you get this a lot in children's books, children's Bible books. This is is how it portrays the Bible. This is how, how it portrays people. God saves people who are good, and God punishes people who are bad. Noah was good. Therefore, God saved him. Be like Noah. <laughs> that's, that's a bunch of nonsense. You don't find that in God's word. That's not how it is. This isn't the message of the Bible. This isn't the message of Hebrews eleven seven. The truth is that Noah, he was a sinner just like you and I. He did not deserve God's grace. He didn't deserve that ark. He didn't deserve those blueprints. He deserved judgment just as much as the rest of his generation. He deserved judgment just as much the rest of, as, as you and I. It's, we're all in the same boat. Um, and <laughs> that, was, that was not intended. Um, 
but no, but it, it's true. So he, he deserved judgment just the, as much as the rest of his generation. And I find this interesting. You know, the, the first and only, we said that, that there's no really words given to us by, um, by Noah in, in, the, in the account of the story. There's no words. There's only his, his actions that we see. The, only, the first and only actually words recorded of Noah appear in Genesis 9 with him waking up after this kind of drunken stupor. And so the bottom line is that Noah, he wasn't a saint. From Hebrews eleven seven, we see that Noah was set apart by his faith. That's what made him different. Noah, he understood the holiness of God. He recognized that he was a sinner. He trusted in the promises of God to save him and ultimately to save a savior for him. He followed God in faith, knowing that his salvation it rested in the mercy and, and, and the grace, the character, the person of God, not by merit of his own obedience, or his own excellence. Our text says that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is just another kind of another way of saying justification by faith that is declared righteous by God. And every man, woman, child that's ever been saved has been saved the exact same way throughout all of history. Noah, he was justified before God because his faith, ultimately, it looked forward. It looked forward to the cross, to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the only perfect man, the man who, who knew no sin but became sin for us so that we could be called the righteousness of God. It was looking forward to that. So from the cross, the blood of Christ is stretched all the way back to atone for the sins of Noah and those first, those, those heroes of the faith that we're considering. And it stretches all the way to us today. It's the same, same way. We're all saved. And I think what's cool is that in Noah's day, you know, they didn't, they had limited revelation. They had these, these stories. We saw how even Noah, he um, came from a heritage of faith, right? These truths that have been, that have been passed along to them. And then, of course, Noah did have direct revelation from God. But I find it amazing that before, long before the cross, even in the midst of this, this period, God used the ark um, to serve as a picture of, of this salvation that everyone was looking forward to. The ark served as a picture of this. Um, there's only one way to be saved, right? And that was through, that, was through that single door that God commanded Noah to, to build into the hull of the ark. Every person, every animal that passed through that door, they would be saved. Everyone outside would perish. And so in the same way, in, um, Jesus insisted in John ten nine, he insisted that I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved, right? And in Galatians 3, Paul explains, talking about this air language that we see here, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, through faith. And if you are Christ, then you are heirs according to promise. So Noah, he was justified. He was saved by his faith. He became an heir of righteousness. He became part of the family of God, the family of faith, because of his, his faith. And this really goes back to the heart of what I said earlier, kind of how I started this, is that um, the family of God, despite all of our external differences— our cultural differences, our skin tone, how we speak. Again, despite all of that, 
we're unified by, <clears throat> by our faith. Faith is not traced um, from a successive bloodline, but it's, it's, it comes from the gifted blood of, of Jesus Christ and, and his righteousness. And this is good news. This is great news for you and I. And if there's someone here who, who has never understood that, they're trusting in something else other than Christ's sacrifice for them, they haven't entered that, that one door, then today's the day to reconsider. Today's the day to enter by faith into that rest that Jesus talks about that was, that was shadowed and, and, and pictured in, in the ark. Today's the day to do that. But this good news um, of faith, of justification, <laughs> of grace that we're considering, it's going to be rejected by many, just as it was in Noah's day. And for such people, what we see in our text here, what Mystery Man says, um, kind of shockingly even, for such people, faith will serve as their condemnation. Notice our text says, when you look back at that at the end there, by this, and it's talking about faith, by his faith, Noah condemned the world. I wrestled with this for a long time. This was, the, the, this text is pretty straightforward. <laughs> like I said, this, this text is very straightforward. It's one verse is, is easy to understand, but, but that, that kind of threw me off. What does that mean? What does it mean for faith to condemn the world? How did Noah's faith pass judgment or condemn the world? How does our faith, does our faith do the same? I had to kind of ask that question and explore that a little bit. And I think the answer is faith, faith, the faith of God's people, it testifies against unfaith. The absence of faith, it's disbelief, right? Like we said, that, that crossroads. The absence of faith is disbelief. So when faith shows up on the scene, it serves as a stark contrast against disbelief. So in this way, faith does condemn. The fire, if you want to picture that, of Noah's faith, it like illuminated the sin and the godlessness that was all around him. It served as a contrast. A contrast, right? Noah was proving to the world, demonstrating by his faith that they were wrong. The world was wrong to turn their back on God. And that's what it means by his faith condemning the world. And to be truthful, our faith should do the same. Our faith should do the same. Like we said, the, the faith of Noah is the faith of you and I, if we're followers of Jesus. So our faith should do the same. And as a disclaimer, this does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that we go around judging people or condemning people. That's not what this means. It means that we live like salt, like light, like a contrast to the godlessness around us. That's what it means to condemn the world by faith. So don't, don't, don't confuse that. Like Noah, we, need to, we ought to be heralds of righteousness who address sin, yes, and address God's, God's holiness, address the necessity for repentance, but we also need to be people who, who just remind people that God is merciful. We need to be all about the gospel. God has, in his mercy, has given us a solution. And so we want people to understand through our testimony, we want people to understand that Christ didn't come to this world to condemn it, the scripture says, but to save it. Like we were singing, for God so loved the world that he gives one and only son, right? That's what the gospel is about. Christ, he came, on to, he came to take the punishment that we deserve. Noah didn't experience that punishment. When he entered the ark, he was safe. Actually, if you, if you want to think about it, take the analogy a little bit further, it was the ark that experienced the punishment for him, right? It was buffeted in the storms 
in the judgment, but Noah was safe in the ark. And the same is true of us if we are in Christ. For those who come to Christ by faith and enter his rest, the one door of salvation, they're free from condemnation. That's, that's good news. Um, because when Jesus returns, what do we know this, right? He returns as the judge. And so like those who suffered in Noah's day, outside the ark, suffered God's judgment in the flood, so too judgment is going to come. And it's going to be swift. Jesus, he compared the final days to the days before his return. And according to the New Testament, we're living in the last days. We're living in these last days. If you read in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 and 39, this is what Jesus said. He said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and then they were all unaware until the flood came and swept them away, so will it be the coming of the Son of Man. So, church, if if we're not (laughs) gripped with these realities, if this doesn't shake us, then we're going to waste our lives. If our lives and minds aren't set on eternity, we're going to blow it. We have this one chance. We don't want to live in a state of delusion. We want to be we want to be all about the gospel. We want to be all about living lives by faith. Noah, he, he believed, right? He feared God's warning of judgment. He, and he embraced God's plan for salvation. He labored on mission. He didn't get distracted. He wasn't pulled away. He endured year after year. So let's follow his example. Let's not live in a state of delusion. And I, I strongly believe that when we surrender to God's word, when we surrender to it in faith, when we say yes, we behold God's promises, however crazy. We say yes, we lay down our lives, we live as we ought to, and we move forward in action, in obedience. When we do that, God, he promises to call us righteous. He promises to justify and save us and give us, gives, give us lives of hope and joy. This is what it's all about. And I feel like when we do that, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if we deserve to be in a chapter like this, but I feel like when we do that, if we are living like that, because this is the same faith, like we said, this is the same faith that unifies us all. When we do that, we join the heroes of faith in, that we see here, like Noah. We join them. And that doesn't mean that we're perfect, right? We see that they're not. We're like them. We're not perfect, but we get to join them in this, this chapter of, of faith. We're imperfect, but we serve a perfect God. So, as the Apostle Paul, as he exhorted the church in Corinth, um, today with God's help and tomorrow, and the next day and the next day, as we continue to endure, let's walk by faith, not by sight. Let's let our lives be marked by, <laughs> by action instead of talk only. Yeah. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark, but making yourself known. Thank you that our faith isn't um, nebulous, just floating around, unanchored, untethered to substance, but that our faith has a foundation, and it's got, it's your word. It's your word that never fades, as I was um, just learning in the ABF this morning. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for giving us 
a clear instruction for making yourself known. Lord, apart from your Holy Spirit, we cannot live by faith. Apart from your Holy Spirit, we can't endure. But Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord. We pray that we would see fruit in our lives of action, of justification from you. Thank you, Lord, for the account of Noah and these other um, heroes and heroines of faith that we're considering in this chapter that are meant to inspire us and encourage us to persevere in our own lives. Thank you, Lord, that the family of God, we're not, it's not because we come from some successive bloodline or we're all the same types of people. Um, Thank you for this faith that unites radically different people um, for your glory. Um, we're, we're in awe of that, and we just pray that we would, um, serve you well this week, and we, we commit um, the rest of the day to you in faith. Yeah. In Christ's name we pray, amen.